On this edition of the Scott Thompson podcast with Scott Radley stepping in for him today, Prime Minister has apparently stepped into another controversy, this one involving awarding a contract to a charity, the WE charity, that we now learn his mom and brother were paid rather handsomely to speak at. Why does the Prime Minister keep falling into these things? Why does he keep stumbling into these stupid scandals that he doesn't need to fall into? Well, we'll talk about that one. We're also going to be chatting about Hamilton's home prices. If you're trying to buy into the market for the first time, I hate to discourage you, but prices are on their way up and fast. And we will be talking about socially socializing and parents and kids because a lot of parents, 75% almost, according to a StatsCan poll, are concerned that this long self-quarantine and change in lifestyle is causing social problems for their kids. We'll talk about all of it. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I don't want to say that we've sung this song before, but we have sung this song before. Once again, we are talking about an ethics investigation or at least ethics complaints into something the prime minister has done. This one, you've probably heard the story by now. The federal liberal government gave a single-sourced contract of almost a billion dollars to the WE charity. Now, a single-sourced contract, I'm assuming you know what this is. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be patronizing, but for the few who don't, they didn't put out anything out for bidding. They didn't see who could maybe do this for less. They simply chose the WE charity and said, here's a billion dollars, basically. Go to it. Where the problem comes in, is that we were originally told that while the Trudeau family has been closely connected with this volunteering, yesterday we learned that the Prime Minister's mother and brother have been paid handsomely to speak at WE Charity events. So for those who are on social media who are not quite understanding why there's a problem, it's not that Margaret Trudeau and Alexandra Trudeau are being paid to speak. They are entitled to make a living. No one's begrudging them the chance to be paid for their work. It's that they're being paid by an organization that the their brother, their son, single-handedly or with his government chose only to give a giant contract to them. It, that is the definition of a conflict, especially when it's almost a billion dollars. It smells of favoritism, smells of problems, and... Well, let me bring in Stephen LeDrew. He is a political commentator. He's also the former president of the Liberal Party. Stephen, thanks for doing this today. Scott, it was painful to hear you do the introduction. Everything you said was true, but it's a, it's a, it's a terrible state of affairs. Well, here's the thing. I, I truly do not believe that Justin Trudeau is a bad person, but I am starting to believe that he's not all that bright. And the reason I say that is because this and all the other messes that he's got himself into have been so predictable that it's just stunning to me that somehow the alarm bells never seem to go off. Because the ego is a lot bigger than anything else. This is actually, this is what happens in third world countries, in little banana republics. This is corruption. So the Canadian government has for years and years and years, starting with his father, given hundreds of millions of dollars to the Aga Khan Foundation. Your listeners will remember that. And then Trudeau invites himself down for a holiday. And so to this, this and he's, a, he's a good gentleman, charitable, down to his island. He's a very, very wealthy man. And they go down for a holiday, and he says, well, there's no problem on that. Well, of course. That's ridiculous. On this one, 
first of all, uh, Trudeau's brother, Alexander, is not um, a well-known person. He's not in public life. He is uh, he's not a, a speaker. He was uh, chosen to give these speeches by Trudeau's friends because he's Trudeau's brother, and they needed to get some money to him. And um, this just smells of corruption. And the same thing with uh, his mother. And last March, I think it was, it was towards the end of the, the winter, this past one, Trudeau's mother and his wife get on a government jet and go to London, England, and uh, with all the security and everything else to give to you know, a speech, really, at one of these we rallies. This stinks to high heaven. And we have no parliament in session because Trudeau bought off the NDP to, uh, with, uh, with a promise of uh, more sick days. So they, there's no parliament to uh, inspect this. Um, we are diminishing our country, in my view. Um, and when people are suffering, Trudeau is handing out billion-dollar contracts to his friends. And Well, and, we and Stephen, let me jump in because you mentioned the Aga Khan, and, and people will remember that this was, as you pointed out, a controversy and a scandal earlier in his time as Prime Minister because Canada gives the Aga Khan Foundation millions of dollars, and then the Prime Minister benefits with luxury trips to his island. But after that one, which is very similar in a lot of ways to this, he insisted that he had learned his lesson and we will do better. And that is the part of this. I mean, look, every government is going to make mistakes and every government is going to do the odd stupid thing. But this is repeating the same mistakes that was insisted that were now fixed. And it's, it's consistent ego over any rationale. And also, it's a consistent lying. And uh, Mr. Trudeau has, uh, has lied on many, many occasions. Remember SNC-Lavalin, he came out and said, Everything was entirely appropriate. Well, everybody knows that that simply wasn't the case. So back to your initial point, Scott, either one, he's a tremendous liar, or two, he just is, he doesn't get it. Um, and it's, it's making Canada look terrible. There's another incident. It was, uh, it was uh, in the winter when one of his friends, Noah Trevor, I think his name is, he's a late-night comedian on American TV, had a charity and Trudeau said, I can't be there, I'm sorry, to be there with all my rich, worldly friends, but here's $60 million to the cause, as though it's his own pocket money. Well, that's taxpayers' money. People working hard, making a living, paying their taxes to pay for roads and transportation and bridges and social you know, benefits, and instead Trudeau is spending it like his own money. It's unbelievable. And the other thing is about we, uh, there are a number of articles out, and I have a, a posting last night on Instagram, where we is not exactly um, the, the clean charity that they always say they are. There are strict rules in Canada about uh, accountability for charities, and we uh, doesn't like to stick to those rules. So there's a lot more to come out about this, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's a shame. It's a shame for Canada. It's a shame for Canadians. I just think it's, uh, you know, maybe Trudeau should have gone down there and had that, that uh, signing ceremony with Trump. Well, uh, what I don't understand here, and maybe it's because he is the Liberal Party at this point, I don't know, but there are smart people in the Liberal Party. How come when these things are happening, there are not people who will grab him and say, wait a second, hold on, you can't do this. Give this some sober second thought. It, maybe they are, and he's brushing them off, but it just seems like no one is able to say this is a bad idea, or no one is saying this is a bad idea. Scott, I'll give you the answer to that. And for, I've been around politics for a long time, and I've always told every minister, prime ministers, have somebody there 
who is not telling you you are the best, the smartest, the, the, the most wise person in the world. And it's called having a bunch of sycophants around you when, when you don't have anybody to give you the honest, unvarnished truth. And this, this prime minister's office, as we saw at snc Levela, um, doesn't have anybody around. They just say, oh, Mr. Trudeau, you are just so smart, and you're so wonderful, and no one is there to bring in that check. And when you say it's the Liberal Party, this is not the Liberal Party. I run to people every day who say, well, you know, you were the president. I said, yeah, that was 25 years ago. It was a party. It had, it had principles. It had smart people in it, and it had, it had you know, uh, deference to Parliament. Uh, this is not that same party. This is a party of Trudeau's own making. They chose him because they wanted to get back into power. And as I said, Scott, I hear from people every day saying, you know, it's a shame that um, everything changes, but the party has not changed for the better, it's changed for the worse. And um, we have these situations arising all the time. And it's, uh, it is corruption. Well, may, and maybe this isn't even Steve. Maybe this isn't even Justin Trudeau's fault entirely. I mean, certainly these decisions are his fault. But I'm wondering also if our the the way our ethics rules work in this country are partially to blame here because they're basically toothless. I think it's a two hundred or five hundred dollar fine if you're found guilty, which is absolutely nothing. And after the very first time. If there had been some real teeth in the ethics laws and the ethics penalties, maybe this stuff doesn't continue to happen because now a politician is scared of falling afoul of it again. Well, I think that I hear your point on that, Scott, but I think that the approbation of the public should be should be enough of a penalty. In other words, his his name, his face was dragged through the mud after the Aga Khan, the ethics commissioner looked and said, "This is clearly a conflict of interest," and it was really a bad scene. Um, the Canadian people seem to gloss over these things. That's what's distressing. I asked somebody yesterday, I said, so if there's an election, do you think Trudeau will be elected, re-elected? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I've been on social media this morning, Stephen, and, and reading some stuff to my own detriment, because social media to me is like taking a sledgehammer and bludgeoning your brains in a mush. I mean, it, it, like it, it hurts. Yes. But so many people are making the argument, why are we making a fuss about this? Margaret Trudeau is entitled to make a living. And the, the connection of why this is a problem is just not connecting or they don't want it to connect. And so when you say, you know, that the, the ethics rules, we should allow for the country to take control of this or the, the, the shame or whatever, well, it clearly is not the case. It well, clearly is not the case. It's not the case on social media because we heard from ev- uh, evidence in SNC-Lavalin, the PMO has very strong uh, social media manipulators. And so I wouldn't pay that much attention to social media on this, but I would pay attention. I bet you, if, if, if you and I, Scott, walked out through the streets of Hamilton, and just talked to people who are, as I said, you know, out there, you know, trying to get ahead, making a living, putting their kids through, you know, college or whatever it is, and we explain this, does this seem wrong to you that the prime minister, on his own, gave a $900 million contract to some friends of his, who at the same time were paying his mom and his wife big fees for public speaking, most people would look at us and say, well, that's wrong. It's wrong. And I, I, can, tell you, I can tell you for sure, Stephen, when they would have said it was wrong. If you had asked this question and the Prime Minister was Stephen Harper, people oh. would have got, lost their minds about giving it to a friend with his mother being paid and all the rest. I guarantee you that that would have been the case. And, I, and, and what I'm trying to figure out is, uh, are we so shallow now that if you like, I, I don't know, I, I just don't understand the, the lack of curiosity or the lack of interest 
and I'm not even I'm not even standing here saying, listen, Justin Trudeau must resign. I just expect that by the time you've been prime minister for five or six years now, you're not on to your third ethics violation or, or investigation plus a series of blackface scandals. Like surely our country can be expecting better from our leader. Well, we should be expecting better from our leader. I think in normal times we, we would be. I think it's unfortunate the Conservative Party is going through leadership right now, so that's they are they have one hand tied behind their back. Uh, the NDP aren't going to do anything because they just got bought off by the uh, the Liberals. So you, some people look at it and they say, well, there's no alternative. I just think it's um, I think it's it's a, it's a terrible commentator commentary on our uh, on our country that that is indeed the case. And as as you and I have seen, Scott, we have some low times and you have some bad times and hard times in politics, and we are really scraping the bottom on this thing. The bottom. I think that. Trudeau, if he had any honor, he'd resign. But he's not going to resign. You know that. I know that. Because he doesn't have any honor. He just well, a number so of a, a number of years ago, when uh, some people may or may not remember the name, they'll remember the story. Uh, there was a conservative uh, politician named Bev Oda who got caught spending sixteen dollars, I think it was, on a glass of orange juice on the government dime. And you can go online, and Justin Trudeau, prior to prime minister had a petition that he launched online demanding she resign over this. So clearly at some point, whether for effect or out of true belief, there was a thought that we can do better and we should expect better of our politicians. Again, I'm not saying he necessarily should resign. I just think, you know, when you've said you've learned your lesson after the Aga Khan one, and then you've said we've been chastened by the SNC-Lavalin one, why are we into this same kind of thing again? Nothing clearly has been learned. Well, no, well, I agree with that. And he has no moral compass. Trudeau thinks that whatever he can do, it's the right thing to do. And uh, there's no one giving him any contrary advice, which just shows, again, I go back to the point, it's like some dictator of a, I don't even want to malign small, you know, island countries anywhere, but I mean like somebody who runs it out of his back pocket. And that's what Trudeau, on the evidence we have, is doing with Canada. And thank goodness for talk show hosts and, and radio shows like this one, Scott, that you know, people can, can talk about it, learn more about it, because you know, the mainstream media, a lot of TV and the number of newspapers are not covering this now because they like the Prime Minister so much. Stephen LeDrew, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure. See you later, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You either own a home or perhaps you wish you could own a home or you have owned a home, but it's, you know, we all have to live somewhere. And if you are one of those people who is trying to get into the market, boy, oh boy, you know, everything that has come along over the last number of months has led some people to think, well, maybe this is the moment. Maybe, maybe this is when the market cools a bit, drops a bit, regresses a bit. And, and if I'm lucky and I've saved some money and I've been ready to pounce, maybe this is going to be the opportunity that I'm going to have to get into the Hamilton housing market. Or maybe, and no one I hope is rooting for others' failure or others' struggles or others' pain, but maybe with all the people who are now out of jobs or their in income has gone down, maybe there are some people who are going to have to sell their house because they can't afford it anymore. And maybe there's going to be a glut of homes on the market, which will repress the prices. And, and maybe then I'll be able to get myself that home that I've wanted to get for a long, long time. Well, that may have happened for about eight minutes, but it's not still happening. Uh, 
the latest figures from house prices in this city are that they are up 9.1% in the second quarter. Think about that one for a second. In the second quarter of the year, of the financial, of the fiscal year, house prices are up by almost a tenth in their value. In one quarter, the average house price in Hamilton now is 592000 That's your average price. $600,000, let's round it off to. 600000 is your average. And depending on where you go in town, well, obviously, if it's an average, there's some you can get for lower, but there's some you get for a lot more. Let me bring in Judy Marsales, who is the woman whose name is behind the signs you see everywhere with her own realty, Judy Marsales Real Estate. Judy, thanks for doing this today. Well, Scott, I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, and I'm especially glad you were able to do this because people don't know this. We actually caught a real estate agent on the day she herself is moving. And so she's in the middle of boxes and doing everything else. So we do appreciate you taking a few moments. I hope you, I hope you found a good realtor to do your sale for you. (laughs) I did indeed. One of my own sales people were absolutely wonderful. And uh, if you can imagine, then I'm sure the listeners will have a good laugh about this. But I sold my house, I think, a week before COVID hit. (laughs) Well, you got out in the right time then, I guess. Oh, my goodness. But moving right now this week has been so hot. I feel so bad for these wonderful people at Morrison Moving that have been struggling with the heat. But they have been absolutely amazing. I tell you, I couldn't say enough good things about them. I would suggest that uh, working for a moving company this week is the greatest weight loss program you could possibly <laughs> undertake. You're gonna, just going to sweat off the pounds like you can't imagine. Oh, the patience those gentlemen have to have. Oh, and, and the endurance. I, I tell you, I have been so impressed. Oh, my goodness gracious. It has been really awful. I am exhausted. <laughs> Judy, let me uh, let me jump into this for a second because I'm not surprised that the Hamilton housing market is rebounding a little bit and back on its way up. Where I'm surprised is that it's rebounding this quickly because there are still so many people that are concerned for their jobs and that maybe don't have a job or that their income is down or they just simply have a concern about the economy. I'm I'm shocked that it's happened this fast. Well, it's interesting you say that, Scott, because I think you are reflecting a lot of what I've heard from other people. Um, But there's two things I think that's stimulating. Uh, Number one, of course, interest rates are at almost historically low levels. So people are looking at that opportunity. And the second thing, of course, is that listings are down. You were mentioning a minute ago about prices being up. But if you look at basic economic supply and demand, listings are really down. And then if you want to add just a third point, people have more time right now with COVID and the shutdowns. They're spending time online. They're spending time thinking about what they're going to do going forward. And suddenly you're thinking, oh, gee, maybe I can go look at a house. Maybe I want to go and move. Um, The areas of Hamilton right now that I'm going to put in quotation marks are hot uh, are the Hamilton Center and Hamilton Mountain. And quite interestingly enough, I think it's price point based. Um, but a classic example of that, uh, our broker manager, Zena Dalton, had a property at 86 Blake for sale. Which is where? Which is downtown. Or downtown, uh, okay. Center. And it was listed for six ninety nine, if you can imagine. And they had nine offers sold for eight fifty in this market. So it's just bizarre. 
Um, and I will say, if I may, uh, without sounding like Mother Hand on the radio, um, I want consumers to make sure that they get the best trustworthy advice they can right now because it's very much a case-by-case analysis and the market is uh, just absolutely erratic. I couldn't think of a better word. Um, you know, I talked to three of our, our own people who are top salespeople, Steve Roblin being one of them, and uh, he said right now the multiple offers and the listing shortage is what he sees as um, causing some of this um, challenge, if you will, in terms of price point. And then um, another one of our brokers, uh, Liz Parker, she said that the residential market right now feels like what it traditionally does in the prime spring market. So is it possible? Well, we missed that. We missed that, right? We missed that whole season. So it's just maybe been delayed. Right. So it, maybe it's delayed, but the other thing she made note of, anything under 500000 right now is experiencing major multiple offers. And now, having said that, uh, I think they all agree that it is all pres- precipitated on the correct list price at the beginning. So if people anticipate high, high values, they might unfortunately not meet those expectations. So again, going back to good advice, case by case, good. You have to look at this and and work with somebody that you trust and uh, just analyze the whole thing. I mean, yes, there's virtual tours, there's virtual everything, as we all know. <laughs> and I send virtual hugs out to all the consumers. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone bought a house through you or through your agency without seeing the house, but just by looking virtually? Uh, I think they have. Um, what they do sometimes is make it conditional on uh, a final viewing. And so before, you know, everything firms up, if you will, um, they do go down. I mean, uh, to look at the house. And, and the other thing, too, is everybody right now is practicing proper COVID protocol, as you can imagine, you know, uh, with masks and with the uh, um cleanliness and you know people want to be very protective and it's very important and that actually interesting enough Scott speaks to the reduction in listings currently there is a thought that people are nervous about having people in their homes so they don't want to put them up for sale and that is more reflected in the older generation from our experience um, and you can understand that and certainly. Yeah. Respect. But the idea of not looking at a house much or at all and looking online and look, some of the online stuff now is very cool that can be done. The 3d imaging and the walking through the house. And everything. But the idea of deciding to buy a house based on looking at something online, when you're talking about 600,000 or more, my goodness, uh, I, I don't, I don't really necessarily like to buy a pair of pants unless I can try them on, and don't, let alone not not re- looking at them online. A house, I mean, that's boy, you got to have some um, some serious. I don't know what it is to to be able to make a decision like that. Trust, yes, well, something. I, um, some of it is a, a different generation of appreciation for how things work online. Um, but I completely agree with you. I would like to think, and I would certainly give advice to everybody, uh, make sure if they do make, you know, want to buy something online, that you do have a, co- a comfort uh, clause in there about 
seen it uh, yourself to ensure that what is online is truly representative of the home. Um, there, especially with older homes, there's all kinds of elements mm-hmm. to it that one has to be really, really careful about. You don't see any of the flaws in the lovely pictures, and and you know, I mean, that's uh, I, I know your job is to make those pictures lovely, but though I mean, any old house or any house that's been lived in is going to have some stuff, and you really you don't see that very often. And here's the amazing part to me. You talk about people spending time online. I don't really know why I do this. I have no intention of moving. I'm not buying. I'm not selling. But I spend, I go on realtor.ca all the time. I just find it interesting to see what's out there. And what's caught me completely by surprise lately is once upon a time and not that long ago, the idea of a million dollar home in Hamilton was a rarity. And now, especially in the suburbs, houses pushing a million dollars are far, maybe not quite a million, but in the 900s, far Mm -hmm. from a rarity anymore. That's very, very true, and I, I think that's uh, a product of market, a product of, again, lack of supply. But also keep in mind, Scott, that Hamilton has been too low for too long. I think I've said this multiple times. <laughs> um, when you look at some of our neighbors, uh, whether it's Toronto, uh, even Burlington for that matter, um, we have been, you know, sort of the poor cousin and people now are really starting to appreciate this amazing community that we have. Um, you know, whatever your interests are, you can find it here in Hamilton. We have one of the best music cultures. We have one of the best education facilities available. It doesn't get any better. So whatever stage and age you are, Hamilton has it. And, uh, you know, once we're out of this COVID thing, um, Hamilton is just on the way to the top. I have to believe too that something, and I don't know how you prove this, it's, it's, it's anecdotal, I suppose, but I have to believe that something that is suddenly driving these prices is over the last number of months, many people, most people have been stuck in their home and maybe working from home and realizing they are going to continue working from home after all this is done. And if that's the case, I want to have a place that I can live in. If I'm going to use it as my office and my home, I want to have a nicer home and I'll pay for that. And and I have to believe that's creating some of the demand. Well, it's certainly creating some of the interest. I completely agree with you. And it depends on, uh, again, age and stage. Um, some people like working at home. Some people are finding it very intrusive and uh, some somewhat challenging, to be honest with you. But, it, you know, I think staying at home in the lockdown has created a whole new perspective on how we think, how we work, and how we want to live. And what it's doing for the real estate market is allowing that perspective to be shared in whatever home one wants to live in. Well, it refocuses what you find important, I would think. And then if you are not satisfied or not happy with the house you're in because it doesn't give you what you want, you're going to look and try and find something else that is because you're going to spend a lot of time there. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. But you know, Which, the other thing is, there's a new sense of spending time in the home. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, Scott, that people didn't, you know, they were looking at smaller and smaller square footage because they weren't spending any time there. So this is really quite a dramatic change in a very short period of time. And I would have to assume, and again, I'm going only anecdotally, you would be able to tell me better, but... There have to be an awful lot of people who spent, the, especially the first little while of COVID stuck in their apartment that may or may not have a balcony or something and have said, you know what, 
forget this. I got to find somewhere where I've got a backyard or I've got a porch or I've got a pool or whatever. I, I want to move to somewhere going sort of back in time. I mean, one at one time the suburbs were where everyone went and then we all said, hey, we have to move downtown into higher density areas. I've got to believe there's a bunch of people saying, wait a second, I like that other idea a bit more right now. Well, I think it's it has a lot to do with age and stage of life. But to be honest with you, uh, interesting, you mentioned pools. You know, for so many years, pools were kind of um, out of popularity. And now they are back. I was talking to a gentleman in the pool business right now. They cannot keep up with the phone calls right now. It's just amazing how that has changed in such a, you know, a reasonably short period of time. Who are the buyers who are in the market right now? I mean, are they first-time buyers, or are you finding mostly these are people who have owned homes? And I mean, we're, we know a lot of people from Toronto or from other places, but I mean, is it are, are people able to get in right now as first-time buyers, or are these all repeat customers? Well, you know, it's a little bit of everything. There's a cross-section of almost every generation. You've got um, the baby boomers who are thinking about where they want to live going forward. So a lot of them are anticipating uh, selling now because they know the prices are good and, um, you know, they might want to consider condo uh, or do something else. Then we've got the first-time home buyers that, uh, particularly as you identified, if they're coming sometimes from out of our area, they're going to drive till they can afford it, you know, the old saying. And then um, we have sort of the young couples who may be just starting a family and, you know, they started out in a, con- a small condo and now they want to buy a home. They want to have that backyard. They want to have the pool. So I can't say that it's one generation. It's an amazing time where this COVID thing has tickled the brain of everybody in terms of where they see themselves going forward. If it's if it's drive till you can afford it, there's a lot of people who won't be slowing down till they hit Sioux Lookout. I mean, it's, these are, it's a busy, it's a busy and it's an expensive time. And with first time home buyers, we had Tim Hudak, who's now the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association on the show, either last week or the week before. And he was talking about now the changes to the uh, mortgage insurance through CMHC, which make things even more difficult. It's more expensive to get your insurance and you can't pay, you can't get insurance for as high a mortgage, which is squeezing the people who do want to be able to buy a new house. It's become even harder for them. Well, I think they, they're creating more protection um, because I think everybody was going a little bit crazy there for a while in terms of accelerating their debt levels. And now they're suggesting that we should all approach it with a little more caution and that's a reasonable approach in my view. Oh, agreed. Um, agreed. Uh, it just makes it more difficult if you're trying to get in. And as you describe, you've got a house that's under 500,000 now, which is okay. Now that's where we can afford. And suddenly there's nine different buyers getting into a bidding war. It becomes really difficult. Well, that's why most buyers are well advised to meet with their financial people ahead of time, whomever they like to work with, get a couple of opinions and then establish what is the affordable range for your purchase, establish how the insurance will work for you, and be really, really aware before you even get into the seriousness of buying. And that way, you don't have to be held um, hostage, if you will, to all these changes. You're ready to go. You know what you're doing. And if you are in a bidding war, you're ready to make the decision that works for you. 
Judy Marsales, you can uh, find her at judymarsales.com. That's her website, or you can find her in her new place. She's moving in, so she's probably going to be there for a while. Uh, Judy, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, Scott, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to our radio show tomorrow. At uh, We're on at 11 o'clock on CHML, Sold on Hamilton. There you go. Tune in for Sold on Hamilton tomorrow with Judy. Thanks for doing this. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have now gone four months, give or take, in some form of self-quarantine or controlled social circumstances. And for adults, uh, I have no doubt that for many people, this has been uncomfortable, perhaps depressing. Some people having issues of depression or anxiety because they have not been able to be out and be around other people. But for kids, I remember when I was a kid and I remember what summers were like, and you probably do too. For me, um, you know, it was, you were out from sunup till sundown. You came home when your mom stood on the porch and yelled at you that it was dinner time, and then you finished dinner and it was summer. So you could go back out and play after dinner. That was an amazing treat until it became almost dark and you could do whatever. The best summer we ever had was the summer they dug up our road to do road repairs and there were no cars and mounds of dirt and everything else. It was amazing. Well, kids this summer, not quite getting the same thing. And I'm not just talking because of how we change as parents and no longer let our kids just run around from sunup till sundown. This is not the time when you're able to do that because of social distancing and masks and all the rest. Well, a StatsCan survey now says three quarters of parents are expressing concern that their children are maybe not getting the social stuff, the socialization that they need. Karen Irwin is the founder of Rue Parenting. She joins us now. Karen, thanks for doing this today. Hi, thank you for having me today. Uh, listen, I'm thrilled to have you along um, because you would know better than I. I've, I've had kids, they're a little older now, but they're not facing the kinds of things that a kid who might be in elementary or middle or high school be, uh, would might be facing. Should we be concerned that kids have spent this much time not able really to do the thing kids do, or are they emotionally pliable enough that it's really no big deal? They'll survive. Um, I I think we should, as parents, definitely be aware of the challenge that this is causing for kids, and um, but also be aware that kids are resilient and they are adaptable. And one of the the best ways to help them be resilient is to support them, to be there for them, to help them reflect on how difficult and challenging this is, and you know, help them be hopeful and maybe think of ways that they can make sort of the best of this uh, not so great situation. The fact, the fact that you are the founder of Rue Parenting, I am going to give you the benefit of the doubt and assume, I am sure properly, you are a great parent. <laughs> and that means that your kids are probably going to be able to have the things you just talked about, where you can encourage them and help them out and everything else. There's a lot of kids, though, that don't have that. And Mm -hmm. the time either spent in school or with their friends, with their kids their age, provide that kind of socializing, though. So for them, I'm wondering if we're talking about something different. Yeah, well, definitely we've probably read and and heard about how difficult it is for children who who need that, those social outlets and that experience at school because maybe the home environment is not optimal, optimal and yeah, that, that is a challenge for kids. 
Um, you know, and I, I realized too that the role of community is a lot different um, now because of physical distancing. And but you know, I do think that you know, if if you're a neighbor or you know that you know maybe there's a child that could use some external support there are also creative ways that we can do that or a grandparent can do that you know facetiming a joke every day um you know having a time every day where they call and they tell them some cool facts about something that they're interested in so i I think that we as a community although we can't do the traditional things that we might do to support kids i think that we need to kind of be creative and think outside of the box and and come up with different ways that we can show kids that we're still there for them and give them that stability that they need in this new reality. I would think that within that, though, there are, first of all, I think we agree probably that there is further value to more hands-on person to person. I mean, we can do those things because we don't have the ideal situation, but they are not necessarily the ideal uh, but I also think there's probably certain ages where that face-to-face interpersonal stuff is even more important than others. I, I, I'm not entirely sure I know what ages though would be, but would you agree? Are there times when we look at this and go, man, they really at this age need to be learning how to deal with other people and other kids? Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot about you know younger children. So you'd say toddlers, preschoolers, even early school age children. So between two and six years old. I think definitely those children learn best by doing and observing what's going on around them in their environment. And so obviously having a diverse experience helps them see different roles, see different ways that people deal with things, see different, um, you know, ways that they can show and be empathetic. And, and that, that obviously is not, not happening when children are physically distancing and, you know, sheltering at home. But then also, you know, it affects older kids as well. Um, children who are 10, 11, 12, those kids are at the start of really shaping their role and identity in the world. And although their parents and family play a role in helping them develop that, their peers and their extracurriculars and, their coaches and teachers also play a huge role. And obviously that isn't occurring as much um, in this time. So you use the, yeah. no, no, you use the word there that I, I'm, I'm so glad you did because it's what I've been contemplating, but I didn't want to plug it into your head and it, it, yeah. it you, it, which is empathy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that four months or depending how long this drags out, if it goes into the fall, six months, whatever, I don't know if that's enough time to have any real impact. But one of the things you get when you do have to interact with other kids is you learn the world is not all about you. You have Mm -hmm. to work with other people with their interests and to compromise and do, well, if you're by yourself all the time, the world is entirely about you. And that's the thing that I'm concerned. And I, again, I don't know if this is long enough to have a negative effect that way. But Mm -hmm. you need to have other people around for that empathy to develop. Yeah. um, And you'll probably get the that see that I'm very hopeful. And that's the lens I'm always looking through. And, you know, I I agree with you. And but I also think that, you know, we have to kind of work with what we've got. And yes, a really wonderful way for kids to gain empathy is through their peers and seeing how they impact their peers and 
what makes their peers feel great and what makes their peers not feel great. But I also think, you know, family can can help shape that too. And doing like simple things, like for example, sitting around the table each night if, if for a meal and saying, you know, a highlight about someone at the table and why you have that highlight about them for the day and having each member of the family say something about someone different. That's a way that kids can develop empathy because they can, you know, see how they are impacting others positively or negatively. And, and, and that's an, a way that it can be done. Another thing too is books and, and television shows and uh, games. There are lots of ways that we can help kids gain empathy through those mediums as well. Yeah, so this, this is a an... total lost cause, but I think that we definitely have to think outside of the box and be a bit creative in it. Well, this is an area that I, I would assume psychologists and psychiatrists and sociologists have been fascinated about for a long time. And when I say that, and I'm trying not to be ridiculous when I say this, but there are enough fictional stories and movies and stuff of kids and people who have grown up without other people around them. Um, you know, I mean, Jungle Book, for example. I mean, th th this has been something, this, this uh, idea of not being around people has been something that's interested us for a long time. Now, I know that's fiction. I, I get it. But, and I, and I, as I've said a couple of times, I don't know if four months or five months or six months or eight months is long enough that it does anything, but we kind of have a bunch of kids right now that are really the subjects of an unintended science project of, of an experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the things too, that you know, when you say the jungle book or <laughs> one of the things that I think about that I, you know, talk to families about and try to promote with my kids is we have to try to find some sort of purpose for our kids during this time. And that is also a way for kids to gain empathy because it helps them think about something beyond themselves. And whether that purpose is, you know, learning a new skill, whether that's, you know, writing jokes and sending them to people who could use a laugh, whether, you know, there's so many different ways that kids through technology now can have some sort of role and purpose. And I think that that will help kids right now because otherwise, you know, um, like what do they, they have going on? Um, and we need to kind of create that for them to help them be successful and come out on top. You mentioned technology. Um, there's another area that I, you know, I wonder about, and that is at a certain point, mom or dad or mom and dad, are going to either have to do their own work or are just simply at the end of their tether. Cause you know, we know how parents, yeah. you know, parents and kids, they can butt heads occasionally and they mm -hmm. say, just go sit in front of the TV or just go in front of the computer. And I'm guessing there's a lot of kids that are spending even a lot more time now in front of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, concerning yeah. or not concerning? Well, technology has definitely become a tool that we have to use to help us during this time. As a parent myself, you know, definitely the screen exposure that my kids have has increased. And I think that we have to, you know, be aware of that, be okay with that, because, you know, we kind of got to use all the resources that we have to help us. But some things to, you know, help make sure that we're being thoughtful about it. I always tell parents, focus on the quality and the, the content that your kids are engaging in. Um, because, you know, that if they're going to be watching something or playing something for a long period of time, at least we want the output to be some of quality. 
And then also, you know, try as best you can to build it into your kids routine. So they know when it's coming, they know when to expect it, that helps them turn it off and move on because they know when it will come again. Um, so I find that, you know, we got to use screens, but that those two tips can help you sort of use them in a way that will be effective and, you know, as positive as they can be at this time. We only have a few seconds left here and we've concentrated on what could be the troubles here, largely because the survey, as I say, it was 75% roughly of parents mm-hmm. who were really concerned about this. What about the alternative though? Is there a chance that this could be a positive thing somehow that kids now learn independence and don't have to rely on their friends and we could come out of this saying, look, we've got a whole generation now of these five months have taught a whole generation of kids how to subsist on their own a little bit. Yeah, no, I think for sure. And I think the positive that I think and I see and hear from parents is, you know, although this is extremely challenging, we are all spending a lot more time together and our kids are learning from that. You know, they're seeing what we do for our jobs, which is really cool. They're seeing our passions. They're seeing us multitask. They're seeing us get frustrated and move on. All those things are positive and going to ultimately help our kids as they grow. Karen Irwin, founder of Rue Parenting. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for doing it today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.